My guest in this podcast is the Reverend Courtney Sampson, who recently retired as head of the Independent Electoral Commission in the Western Cape after 22 years of service with the IEC. I began by asking Courtney about the highlights and the lowlights of his time with the Independent Electoral Commission. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to speak to you about this, these particular matters on the first issue about my appointment within the IEC since 1999, you're quite correct. It comes from an era where we had very high levels of excitement in the country, in building the country. Um, it really was, for me, an opportunity, and I saw it as that, as, as a form of national service. Mm-hmm. You know, um, being able to contribute in a significant manner to the development of a um, new democratic uh, dispensation for our country. So it was an exciting period for all of us. I must also add that the uh, dominant discourse at the time was a discourse on reconciliation. There was a secondary discourse, uh, a secondary discourse on poverty and inequality. Now, I think those things have changed significantly at the moment. And I think that at the time, the leadership of Desmond Tutu, of uh, Nelson Mandela in particular, of uh, people like Alan Busak, um, it was focused on that dominant discourse of reconciliation. It was what we, what we needed and what we needed to hear. So it was great to be part of that particular process. It was wonderful to leave behind party political matters, you know, ideological issues, and focus on what the South African constitution required of us in chapter nine. Um, And that was to uh, deepen and strengthen our our democracy. And for us in the IEC, it was particular in the sense that it was necessary for us to put in place a um, electoral process, manage it, make sure that it works. Uh, one that would be trusted by uh, South Africans, the one something that we would be proud of, and uh, really put our electoral democracy on firm footing. So, yeah, you're quite right. It was a special time, and we were all contributing. But I think what is significant is the um, is what is determined by that dominant discourse I was talking about, um, and how that has changed. Uh, and how the dominant discourse at the moment uh, is clearly about poverty and inequality. And the secondary discourse is now reconciliation. And I think at the time, it was it was mostly about inclusivity, about racial, and you can, you know, you can talk about the racial uh, um, um, reconciliation, but I think what we're discovering at the moment is you can't reconcile wealth and poverty. It can only be shared. And I think we don't have significant enough leadership to take us through that particular challenging uh, discourse that is um, dominating our, our landscape as a country. Let me start with a low light. The low light was, 
the low light was the death of our daughter in 2001. It was a kind of life-changing experience. And I mm -hmm. think something that made one look at the world quite differently. Mm -hmm. But I think the highlights were the incredible people I was able to work with, the other provincial electoral officers from across the country. Amazing, amazing people. You know, it was just great to sit with uh, people like Brigalia Bam at the time, uh, Professor Mandam Kuno was our chief electoral officer who kept on reminding us uh, that we're going to have to build this plane while we're flying it, you know. And yeah. uh, I think he was a very, very inspirational leader. Uh, Brigalia Bam was amazing in the way in which he was able to just stand the ground and really just engage with politicians. They'd be upset and angry, but she would always be able to speak to her them like 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 a big, big grandmother like a gogo mm -hmm. you know and and bring them back to 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 what the issues were that needed to be addressed so it was a it really was it was a great highlight for me to be in the company of my colleagues i think i'm the last of that first crew to leave yeah. um uh, uh in february uh my other colleague who left before me uh, Stephen Gwenya, he, like you, uh, uh, is an advocate as well uh, in Pumalanga and unfortunately has gone blind, oh, you know, yeah. so he has left, um, he's just turned 60, just over 60. But I think that um, I learned a lot from people uh, from all over the place and it was great. The relationships were wonderful and I think we really had a great sense of supporting one another. The other uh, important thing is when I started in 1999, um, it was on the 1st of April, April Fool's Day. Yeah. And the election was scheduled for the 2nd of June. So when I came in, the colleagues in the provincial office had already obviously made all the plans. You know, they had prepared everything operationally, it had been worked out logistically, it had been worked out uh, perfectly. Um, you know, the um, warehouse was ready to distribute um, the uh, uh, material. The voting stations had been um, planned and contracted. You know, the people have been appointed yeah. and trained and so on. So a lot has been done. And so I think one of the uh, highlights I must mention is the incredible staff we worked with in the province, uh, you know, the commitment and the dedication of those people uh, was something that I just really um, admired greatly. And then obviously also being able to walk into a space. I've always been interested in politics, um, but this was a different kind of political engagement. It wasn't party political. It was at a different level of, of political engagement. So I really enjoyed um, engaging with uh, po political parties, political party leaders, representatives. I enjoyed uh, the space of the civil society organizations. I enjoyed meeting, um, you know, key people and so on and, and being able to engage and learn from them um, and, and just hear from them a little bit more about what it is that made them so special. Um, you know, that, that everybody knew about them. So it was great uh, to be there. 
And then obviously also my, uh, the family that supported me right throughout, my wife, um, my, my children, um, the one who died, the one who is still um, alive, is now married. Mm. But I think that the, the whole uh, environment uh, of elections was, was a very exciting environment. It was a scary environment, but it was also exciting. Um, it's ne- it was necessary for us to engage with the media in a particular way. So I worked with people who understood the media, the needs of the media, and how important the media is uh, in an environment such as the one in which we operated. Um, so I think for me, those were the highlights, having a deeper understanding of the need for transparency. Transparency is not something that comes easily. It's something that people don't understand. That has to be given. You know, the uh, conditions for transparent behavior need to be created. People are not naturally transparent. Yeah. I think people naturally appear to sometimes want to hide things. So if you are in such a situation as we were, you need to open yourself, make yourself vulnerable, be honest and open about what the challenges are that you face, and then speak openly to people. So for me, learning those kinds of nuances of life were, were very, very critical, and I, I value them. Well, that brings me to the, the next point. Um, you mentioned the question of transparency, being open with people. From the time of its inception uh, in 1994, right up until the present, the IAC managed to first build and then maintain, I think, a very high level of trust and confidence in the, the eyes of the voting public. And the same, unfortunately, can't be said of very many other high-profile state institutions. So what was the... IEC secret. How did you manage to do that? Mike, uh, I'm glad that that there are people who believe that. And I think that's probably uh, what we set out to do, because if there is no trust, you can't have a a significant um, election. You know, uh, people will begin to challenge it all along. I think it's probably a combination of a few things. If I look at the people who I was able to work with uh, when I was first appointed, they were really outstanding individuals. I mean, there were people that made their mark. There were people who were known by their provinces and who knew their provinces. Um, you know, there were people who were already involved in the life of the people and of the democratic space, uh, which we occupied at the time. Uh, So I think that, in a sense, probably helped. But what is also uh, very important is our electoral system is a very transparent one. Nothing that the IEC does is done under wraps. For example, we had, and we have, we had when I obviously was part of the IEC, we have regular, there are regular meetings with political parties. These meetings take place with representatives of political parties nationally, provincially, as well as in local municipalities. So the political parties are always aware of what is happening. When it's registration weekend or on election day itself, the political parties are able to place uh, party agents inside the voting station. Yep. 
so they can see what has happened. You know, sometimes things can go wrong. I mean, uh, for example, a person can deliberately or a person can accidentally give somebody two ballot papers. Mm. But the fact that we have party agents there, who we always regarded as being on our side, you know, not, not against us, but yeah. working with us, they can then raise it um, and say to the presiding officer, hey, what happened here? And the thing can be corrected immediately almost, you know, at that point it can be corrected. So under the watchful eyes of people who uh, were not part of the operational logistical arrangements, but have got particular interests, um, like party, political party representatives, these party agents played a critical role in ensuring that what happened in the voting station was always above board. Yeah. The same thing happened during counting. They were able to see the ballot papers. You know, the ballot papers are, are thrown out on the table. They turn face upward so that the, the party agents can see who people voted for. A simple thing, like a spoiled ballot, was never determined a spoiled ballot unless the party agents agreed that it was a spoiled ballot. You know, when everything was done, everything happened inside the voting station. So when the, the material was, were, was removed from the voting station, it was already counted. There would be three um, um, result slips. One would be posted on the outside of the voting station. One um, would be um, given then to the IEC for, you know, for verification and for auditing purposes, because we had auditors inside the results and operations center. And, you know, the other one would then be scanned and made sure that it's, and the way in which it was done, the system worked, is that if you, put in the results from the result slip. And the result slip is always signed off by party agents to say, okay, we saw, we were here, uh, we saw the counting, and this is a direct um, reflection yeah. of the outcome of the counting. When that information is placed into the system, the first time the screen remains blank. On the second uh, uh, putting in of the information into the system, the system then lights up. If the two correspond, right. if the two don't correspond, the system remains blank and you know there's a problem. But you see, I think it's these little things which we can, can consider to be little, but these are the things that have helped us. Mm. I must also add that the colleagues that we had um, working with us, were people of special integrity. And I think that's something that I fear sometimes might get lost. We focus on all sorts of things, but sometimes I think we, we focus on the wrong things. Uh, we have got good systems in place in our country. We've got good institutions. We've got great hospitals. We've got schools buildings, you know, in most cases that are actually quite outstanding. The clinics, um, you know, um, have really been 
the footprint of clinics across the country has been incre increased significantly. Our biggest problem is attitude. Yeah. When you have people with bad attitude, with a lazy attitude, with I don't care attitude, then things fall apart. Yeah. Then you can put in whatever systems you want to put in place. You can put in place um, whatever legislation you might want to have. You can build the most beautiful buildings, but if you've got lazy, uncooperative people who just don't care enough uh, to be honest and to deal with their work um, in a matter of integrity and be on time and work on time and put effort in, then things fall apart. I, I fear, I hope I'm not right, but I fear we might be heading in that direction. At the well, faster pace at, than at, what we can imagine, yeah. Let's look at the question of people in the ISC. And we have this, it's always struck me as a slightly um, unusual situation. You are an Anglican priest, 22 years service in the IEC. Uh, the head of operations here in the Western Cape IEC is Derek Marco. We also know him as a minister, a theologian. You mentioned Brigadia Bum, a former chairperson of the commission. Before that, she was the head of the SA. Council of Churches for a number of years. I'm sure there are quite a few other people from the general faith community who have also worked in the IEC. And then we have the Electoral Code of Conduct Commission, uh, which is one of the monitoring bodies um, with a lot of representatives there from the faith community. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's only people from the faith community who are people of integrity or that it necessarily goes hand in glove. But is there, in your view, a specific role for the faith community when it comes to you know, the conduct of elections and, and, and the work of the IEC? Mike, I thought, I thought a bit about this question that you asked, and I kind of backtracked a little bit, and I looked at, um, look, the greater part of my life, I lived on the receiving side of apartheid. Mm. The church was one of the places where we were not excluded from. You know, you'd either become a teacher, and if you had a lot of brains, you'd become a medical doctor, yeah. you know, so that you can enter into UCT, because you couldn't go and study at UCT if you did, if you wanted to do a course that was uh, provided for by UWC, for example. Right. Or you couldn't go to Stellenbosch or to any of the white universities. So one of the areas, I think, where it was possible for us to be able to make a mark um, was within the church. And I think that um, we learned a lot by having to engage in the Anglican church, we had to deal with these, I would like to call them sometimes damn English liberal priests, you know, <laughs> that uh, always believed they knew more than anybody else. And you had to, um, and I come from Paul, you know, I went to school in Afrikaans, and then you have to enter into the Anglican church, and you have to engage with people in the, uh, in, in, in English, and your English has got to be good, because otherwise they just write you off. Yeah. So I think that the, um, the significance of where we come from 
cannot be uh, underestimated in terms of what the church provided. I mean, the church schools were, were significant. Uh, I studied uh, in Grahamstown uh, at what was uh, initially the White uh, Theological College of the Anglican Church. There was also one in St. Bede's and Umtata, and then there was the other one that was linked to the Federal Seminary, uh, first at uh, Fort Hare in, in Paddis, and then yeah. banned from there to go to uh, Umtata, and then banned from there to Peter Maritzburg. You know, so we learned a lot um, during that time, and we learned to uh, tighten up on our English, because you see, that's the other problem that we have. Uh, the the language of English has become such a dominant language in our country that if you don't speak it properly, people don't take you seriously anymore. Mm. So I think the church gave us that opportunity. Um, it's interesting that um, if I look at French-speaking people and German-speaking people and Italian-speaking people who speak broken English, uh, I think people think it's rather sexy. <laughs> but if we can't speaking, and, or is it Kosha speaking, or is it Zulu speaking, and you speak broken English, yeah. then you're just stupid. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the church created that space for us to be able to have to sharpen our uh, minds in order to engage with people who came from an um, educational regime which was regarded as superior to the ones we came from. Mm. So we had to sharpen our minds significantly. We had to sharpen our accents, because if your accent uh, fails you, nobody listens to you. Um, you know, uh, in fact, you become a, a source of irritation if uh, your accent uh, you know, doesn't match the space that you enter into. So, yeah, it was tough because you think in one language, you speak in a different language, you know, and sometimes it comes out the right and sometimes it comes out awkwardly. But maybe those little skills are ones that we've learned in the church, yeah. which yeah. created the space for us just to operate at a different level. And it's uh, the church then, in fact, in a sense, giving back to the community. I know you weren't seconded by the church in any formal sense, but nevertheless, with that background, people like you and Brigadia and so many others have been able to then give back part Archbishop of Bishop Jongo Ndungani wouldn't agree with you. He, he likes to believe <laughs> that he, um, what is this word that they use now, political parties? Um, Deployment. Deployment, he, he likes to believe that he deployed me <laughs> to the IEC. But there was a, a rigorous uh, uh, interview process, you know, but I obviously, obviously, when I was approached, spoke to him about it mm. and had to get his uh, blessing for it. And I must say that uh, his support has, has meant a lot. Uh, mm. And all the archbishops uh, before and beyond that have been excellent in supporting the work that uh, we did uh, within the IEC. Let's just look ahead uh, briefly. Um, I know you're obviously not active in the IEC anymore, but uh, from your experience, if you look at the scheduled local government elections, which we are told will happen in October this year, 
Um, a lot of people are worried about how that's going to be um, you know, conducted in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so what is the, the general thinking? How, how will uh, the elections be run given restrictions on gatherings, the, the need for social distancing, the sanitizing questions? And secondly, what about the more, more political aspects? Some parties are saying, this won't be a fair election because we won't be able to campaign and hold our rallies, et cetera, et cetera. So what are your thoughts on those mm. questions? Look, I think the constitution mandates us to have an election every five years. And for us in South Africa, the five years are not the same for local government election and for national provincial elections because they staggered. Yeah. In 1994, we were ready with the national provincial structures, um, our, our, our boundaries um, and so forth, our provincial boundaries, our national boundary was clear. And so the local government election was only held two years afterwards. But I think that the leaders of the time believed it was necessary for us to have the 1994 election as a nation-building exercise. So the 96 election um, was then the five years. And so we are now, we had the last local government election in 2011. So no, 2016. So in terms of the constitution, there must be an election in 2021 in local government. Now, whether in fact that election is going to be able to be free and fair is now the question you're asking me. Yeah. Every election, and I just want to say this as well, uh, can always be challenged, you know, in terms of, say, for example, let me mention an example. In this case, we're dealing with a pandemic, which, you know, threatens the possibility of a free and fair election, obviously. Yeah. But it's also possible that your warehouse can blow up, you know, in a fire and you can have no ballot papers. Yeah. It can also be possible that you can have storms, you know, of a significant kind. Um, you could also have all sorts of other things that threaten an election. And then it, there has to be a decision that has to be made. That decision is not made by the IEC. Because the IEC doesn't have the authority. Um, but I think it is something that the IEC will put on the table to look at, I believe from reading the newspapers and looking at the media, that the commission have now asked uh, to put together a team of people to look at whether in fact it's possible to have a free and fair election. I believe that if an election is merely South African citizens going to the polls, going to a voting station, making their mark and leaving again, the election can be held. I mean, we've done that with, uh, uh, um, with uh, by-elections. Yeah. But there is much more to an election than that. I think political parties must have a right to campaign. Uh, political parties must have a right to go out and explain to people why it's necessary for them to vote for them, why they would be able to make a contribution. You know, it's part of the way in which yeah. uh, the election works. And I think that at the end of the day is going to be the determining factor here. Um, 
I'm interested to hear what uh, Judge Musnek will come up with, you know, and how that thing will play itself out. But for the IEC, it's necessary for the IEC to be ready. Mm. You know, it, it can't sit and wait, maybe, perhaps not. So um, the IEC would have to have now begun to look and make sure that the, the voting stations, you know, are, are contracted and sought for and the people get appointed. People need to get trained, you know, people need to be ready. The IEC needs to be ready to run an election uh, between August and November 2021. Um, and that's what it must focus on. If something happens in between, the country uh, becomes uh, embroiled in a civil war, then obviously the election can't take place. Mm. Uh, if the pandemic, uh, you know, blows out of uh, proportion and uh, it can't be controlled, you know, and um, too many people are dying, you know, and infected and, and it really gets, then it is obviously something that needs to be taken a lot more seriously. Yeah. But as I say, it is uh, um, constitutionally mandated. There must be an election uh, between August and November 2021. And obviously the conditions under which that election must take place and will take place will be determined um, closer to, 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 to that time. In the meantime, the IEC must prepare itself for running an election at that time. Yeah, and I think we can have a good deal of faith that uh, as it has done since 1994, the IEC would indeed be ready. And uh, we should go forward with a sense of, I think, optimism and faith in in the process. Reverend Courtney Sampson, yeah. uh, 22 years of service to the IEC, uh, head of the IEC in the Western Cape. I think we all have reason to be grateful to you and to your colleagues for keeping that show on the road, running a tight ship in the IEC, and we wish you all the best in your retirement. Thank you so much, Mike. Much appreciated. Thanks, Courtney. Thank this series of roundtables and podcasts is supported by the Hans Seidel Foundation. We are proud to contribute to the National Dialogue on Governance and Democracy. News of our events and our podcasts can be accessed via our website. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za.